The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct to consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C pod wherever you get your podcasts. I think there's a common lie that we're repeatedly told in business. It's that you have to spend money to make money. We often assume that there is a direct correlation between the amount of money spent and the amount of value generated. But there's heaps of evidence that suggests that isn't true. Uber didn't have more budget than every local taxi company combined, yet they took over the industry. Blockbuster spent much, much more than Netflix on branding and marketing, but still lost out. Tesla supposedly didn't spend any money on advertising, yet they're one of the fastest growing auto companies in history. Spending money on marketing is not necessary for results. That is fact. And that becomes even more obvious when you notice the cost-free initiatives that have led to incredible value. One example always comes to mind. The Australian tax collectors had a problem. Residents in Australia were racking up millions in late tax penalties because they simply didn't pay their debt on time. Researchers thought it might have been something to do with the letters the government were sending out. See, these letters were plain, white, standard-looking letters. In other words, they weren't distinct. They didn't stand out. Not only did it mean people just forgot about them, it meant many Aussies didn't even bother opening the letters in the first place. So they made one small, tiny, cost-free change. They added a red stamp labelled urgent on the letter. This tiny change dramatically increased the amount of Australians who opened the letter and the number who paid their taxes on time, ultimately saving citizens $4 million in late tax payment fees. Now, obviously, there is a small cost with this change. Obviously, putting that stamp on isn't completely cost-free, but it is much, much cheaper than sending out dozens of extra letters or the actual cost of paying debt collectors to go and collect the debt themselves. Spending money, it won't guarantee results, and cost-free solutions are always worth trying. On today's episode of Nudge, I'm joined again by Mike Hughes and Ella Jenkins, the behavioural science consultants from Ogilvy. They are going to share three cost-free or low-cost case studies with eye-opening results. All of the examples they'll share today are written up in the Ogilvy Behavioural Science Annual, so if you'd like to follow along as they talk, click the link in the show notes to download your copy. To kick off, Ella shares how the Ogilvy team tried to solve the problem of food waste and stop us from chucking away leftover bread. One of the challenges we have approached with recently was by RAP, who are one of the um, the country's kind of biggest food waste organisations. And they came up with us to the issue that knowing that um, over 410,000 tonnes of bread are wasted every year, which, I mean, is quite hard to relate to, but essentially boils down to about 20 million slices of bread being thrown away every single day. What can we do in behavioural science to actually prevent this? And what can we do to get people to save their bread before it gets to the end of its life? So we approach this by looking at the behaviours involved in freezing and freezing bread. We know that one way to make food last longer without actually compromising the taste 
is to put it in the freezer as soon as you get it. So our research showed that bread itself is considered to be one of those safety staple food items that people often have in the house. Um, but because it's such low cost, it's not always perceived to be worth freezing as opposed to something like meat, which you kind of you don't want to waste or throw away. So we looked at the bread packaging and we thought, is there a way to design the bread packaging and use this as our touch point to encourage people to freeze the bread before it goes off, before it gets wasted? And to do this, we use a number of different behavioural science principles. So we use some research to understand the audience and their barriers and why they weren't freezing. And also looked in depth at different types of bread packaging and where we could play with the bread packaging in order to make it um, designed in a way to encourage freezing. And we landed on four key behavioural science levers to pull. The first of which being chunking, which is the idea that breaking the packaging up into different chunks and separating it is a way to encourage people to think about the bread differently. So we encourage people to actually chunk the loaf into two sections, thinking as the second section was the section you'd put in the freezer. And we made this quite obvious within the packaging. So the chunking solution Ella is referring to here led to a distinctive design. On one end of the loaf, the team changed the colour of the packaging. It stood out in big font saying, please freeze these. Now, chunking isn't a new idea in food. Kit Kats are chunked into four to stop people from eating the bar too quickly. Cornetto add a chocolate filling to the bottom of the cone to leave the customer with an enjoyable final mouthful. It's a good principle, but probably not enough on its own to change behaviour. So the team added some other nudges. The second thing we did was use social norms. So social norms being the fact that we looked at others for indicators for how to behave, and this being one of our strongest drivers of behaviour. We wanted to imply that freezing bread was a really common and quite desirable thing to do. So we created um, some messaging, which was called Eat Me, Freeze Me. So the idea that people, other people are doing this already, it's a standard behaviour um, and it becomes a norm. And then thirdly, we use some emotive cues. So we use visual cues on the bread packaging itself and um, little icicles and things which made you feel like it's fresh and ready to be frozen. And also some messaging which suggested it's delicious toasted from frozen. And then finally, to make things really salient, we used design aspects and things which we could try and use to draw people's attention to the new aspects of the packaging um, with colour and design to make the freezing section really stand out. So I think with this case study, what we did was we trialled it in a real world intervention. The point of the annual was to celebrate the interventions which don't always turn out exactly as you plan. Um, but knowing that some of the learnings you can get from testing are really important to talk about and share so that other people um, can help use these insights in their own challenges and projects going forward. Essentially, what we found from our testing was that while people did actually freeze the bread, they didn't freeze it in the way we intended. So we in intended people to freeze the end slices um, because that would be the last bits of the loaf that were still in the packaging and then you could put that packaging straight in the freezer. Whereas our research suggested that people wanted the, to freeze it straight away in order to preserve the freshness. So we found that this insight, the fact that freshness was so important, um, was a really strong link that we didn't initially anticipate. So people knew that people wanted their bread to be ready for sandwiches, ready for any occasion and not just for toast, not for just for toasting. 
And people also suggested that frozen bread was actually linked to less quality, which we didn't realise before. And it kind of contrary to our initial um, perceptions that freezing would actually lead to increased freshness. I think just to reflect on this is that the importance of qualitative testing is so valuable in this kind of example. We could have done a survey and got some quantitative data and found that 100% of people actually did freeze the bread. And then we'd be like, okay, great, that's cool. It worked exactly as we intended. Let's close the book here. But actually by getting that qualitative, more rich data insight, we found that people were doing what we wanted to, but in a roundabout way. But it helped us learn that we did actually need to adapt the packaging and adapt the messaging in order to reflect those perceptions of freshness and reflect how people were actually responding to the bread and their use cases. Um, so these findings actually got on to inform broader bread packaging guidance for the sector and hopefully helping to reduce those huge figures of how much bread is wasted every single day in the UK. The implementation didn't change behaviour as expected. People didn't freeze the end of their loaves. Instead, they chucked bread in the freezer as soon as they brought it. But still, it did change behaviour, encouraging buyers to freeze more and waste less. It's a great cost-free example. Sure, an expensive TV ad with a celebrity chef would have probably had the same effect, but it would cost far more. By leveraging behavioural science, you can find cheaper initiatives to shift behaviour. It reminds me of the story behind good life margarine. Back in the early 1900s, nobody would buy margarine. Sales dwindled behind butter at just 2% of the US spread market. This is despite the fact that margarine was both cheaper and healthier. Good Life Margarine tried all sorts of expensive marketing campaigns to shift behaviour, but nothing worked. It wasn't until social psychologist Cheskin suggested they should change the natural colour of the margarine from the unappealing shade of white that it was, and instead add some yellow dye to just make it look like butter. This small visual change had a huge effect, growing sales by three times, and in 10 years it overtook butter as the most popular spread. The change, which cost Good Life Margarine less than a cent per tub, generated better results than any of their expensive marketing initiatives. It also explains why I can't believe It's Not Butter sells so well today. But let's fast forward and look at a modern example of a business hitting results with low-cost marketing. A challenge our French team were approached recently was the fact that in train stations across France, it's common for passengers, passengers to head straight to the big screens where you've got all the announcements of platforms and wait underneath them and look up for updates about their train. And I think we can probably see this a lot in London as well. I know Euston Station is absolutely rammed below those platforms and it's just impossible. It starts to cause big crowds and it really blocks the flow of people in the station. Now, the team in France wanted to understand why this was happening. And they came to the conclusion that the habits were really deeply entrenched in people. And it's partly because people feel reassured by the social norms of waiting next to other passengers who are all standing, looking up, waiting for their platform to be announced. But also actually mainly because they're just not thinking about it. You just wait under the screens and it's a deeply rooted behaviour. People often believe that the screens will be the first things to update, to deliver the updates. And it's just an unconscious behaviour that happens as soon as you walk into the train station, you go straight to look up for the, for the announcements. 
So in order to change the behaviour, we had to really disrupt the habits. Something that was salient enough to capture attention. And what is more salient and captures attention than our smartphones and our, than our phones that we look at more times than I think we're willing to admit throughout the day. So we created a giant smartphone that would go around the outside of those big screens and really capture attention when people were looking up, waiting for information about the platform. And we added a message to the smartphone to say, Do you, don't you realise that the actual app, the SNCF app, will deliver the information as quick as these departure screens and to think that this can fit in your pocket? So it challenges people to think differently about their behaviour and realise that actually they can go straight to their phones um, and look for the information on their app, which means they don't have to, to all congregate under the screens and cause all this blocking behaviour. So basically habits, and disrupting habits, being salient um, and breaking that autopilot was the main strategy in this intervention. I've dropped a link to a picture of this app style departure board in the show notes, so click on that to take a look. One nudge this plays on is the power of distinctiveness. Seeing a giant smartphone when we're used to seeing a departure board surprises us. It's salient and different, and it snaps people out of autopilot, which makes them more likely to download the app. It reminds me of a similar study taking place in Stockholm's Odenplan train station. One night in 2009, a team of technicians got to work on something unusual. They placed large black and white panels across the stairs leading up from the metro station into the city. The normal drab-looking staircase leading passengers up out of the station into the street was transformed into a set of giant working piano keys. People, when they walked up the steps, would play a tune. Each time they stepped, a note would be played and people were able to compose duets. They were able to take videos of them playing with these musical stairs. They held hands and laughed as they interacted with this new stairway. Astoundingly, the study reports that 66% more people in Odenplan Metro chose the stairs over the escalator after the piano keys appeared, which is exactly what the team hoped would happen. The salient jolted people out of their routine in Stockholm, and Ogilvy hoped it would do the same in Paris. But it wasn't the only nudge that Ogilvy were relying on. Here's Ella explaining the results after this short 60-second break. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. But we also did leverage the power of something called the mere exposure effect. So by exposing passengers to this big smartphone and this SNCF app, which is the name of the, the smartphone app, 
um, at the right time, and as often as possible, we created a bond of familiarity and increased the intention to use the app. And the results were actually really promising. So after a two-month test, there was a 45% increase in downloads for the app. And people also reported they trusted it more and they had greater perceived usefulness of it. And luckily enough, it's actually being deployed in other train stations across France, including the Gare de Lyon, which is actually one of the busiest stations. Yeah, I, th- I think it shows how how you communicate information is just as important as the information itself. Sometimes, again, you could you could put up posters, you could tell people the right things to do, but making it really salient and creating a giant smartphone becomes effective it's almost a costly signal as well because you know that 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 takes time and effort to place that so they must really believe in this message costly signaling is a really interesting principle the idea is people who see big out-of-home advertising are more likely to be convinced by the ad it's because whoever's promoted the ad clearly has a lot of money to buy expensive ads and if they have a lot of money to buy expensive ads then their message you assume must be important It's why, in general, a billboard is more convincing than a Facebook ad. Now, I'm not going to spend too long on this, but I will highlight one unforgettable example of costly signalling. Now, the company behind this example was struggling to hire a graphic designer. They posted the job on their jobs board and around the internet, but nobody would apply. So they leveraged costly signalling and salience. They bought a giant billboard over a busy street, but to capture attention, they did something a bit different. They crudely designed their poster in Microsoft Paint and drew the words, looking for a graphic designer, email us to apply. You can take a look at this billboard in the show notes. It's quite memorable once you've seen it, and I'm sure many of you will remember seeing it. Now, it's a bit of a joke, of course, but it is leveraging these same two nudges. Costly signaling, which means that the company must be pretty successful if they can afford a billboard to advertise this job, but also salience. Nobody's ever seen such a poorly designed billboard before, so it grabs our attention. Now, again, with this example of the smartphone signs at the French stations, it's not completely free. They will have to pay for printing and installation, but compared to a traditional marketing campaign, it's a fraction of the cost with just as good results. Okay, let's hand back to Mike, who explains the problem that Westminster had with litter. So we are back on the streets and the streets of London in the UK this time. That In Westminster, they had a huge visual problem on the streets and that was that in the communal bin areas, which were on on uh, outside of the streets, um, residents were placing their bags next to the bin rather than in the bin. And this causes huge problems down the line. We see that it invites foxes and rodents and that kind of things. It doesn't look great. Um, and really, we wanted to improve the look and feel of the streets. And the team at Westminster City Council had actually done a lot of the things that traditionally might you might rationally recommend. They've done things like finding people, put up CCTV posters. They've done some initial behavioural insights of using eyes. We know that the power of eyes or feel like we're being watched can, um, can stop us from doing antisocial behaviours. But we knew that if they tried all these things and they hadn't worked, and this was a very difficult challenge, we knew that we had to get really lateral and we couldn't do it by playing it safe. So we looked at two 
quite lateral behavioral strategies. The first is called biophilia. Now, biophilia tells us that when we are exposed to images and scenery of nature, we are more likely to do pro-social behaviors. We're more likely to feel healthy. In fact, there's research that suggests that if you have the window in a hospital ward next to, um, if you have the bed next to the window, which has a field outside, you're more likely to become healthier sooner. So exposing people to images of nature can be really powerful in getting people to do pro-social behaviours. How could we bring that and bring it to the streets of Westminster? The second one was a lot of the comms had been telling people off, telling people not what to do. And we wanted to change that conversation with residents. We wanted to create a much more emotional um, and much more engaging and salient um, way to communicate with residents. So that we developed two conditions that we knew that we needed to trial within our CT. The first of what we call was biophilia bins. And we wrapped the bins with with a plastic graphics wrap with images of nature, different images of nature to expose people to these images. And the the hypothesis was that they would do more pro-social behaviours. We created what we called a no dumping zone around the bins using images of flowers. So people were less likely to place bags on images that they thought were beautiful. The second was what what we called our, our monster bins or affect bins. And we developed what we called trash talk where we developed these monsters as part of the bin design and they were they came up with new messages, um, things like another delivery, leave the evidence with me. My friends say I need to op- open up more free exercise, just lift my lid to claim yours. So a way of telling people the right things to do, but doing it in a much more engaging, emotional way. Now, we spoke earlier about the need to test everything because we don't always see the results that we predicted. And the Westminster case study was no different. We did a small scale trial in July 2021. We found that the data showed that the monster bins reduced dumping behavior, but as part of our empirical standards, not enough to be statistically significant. And that's what we needed to be confident that we would roll this out elsewhere. We found that the the biophilia bins had actually a pushback. People were dumping more, only slightly, but people were dumping more. So that's why we we don't recommend taking forward the biophilia bins and maybe we can develop the the trash talking bins to be more effective in the second iteration. It shows why we need to test everything because not everything that we test will work, but everything that we test we will learn from. So why doesn't biophilia bins? Maybe just exposing people to images isn't enough. Maybe they have to be exposed to more. Maybe it should have been... um, uh actual flowers and plants but we know that that can be expensive and that might not scale because of the expense but we also did qual research as well we spoke to the residents and we got really positive feedback my kids love the new bins and enjoying seeing them every day on the way to nursery and that was really important for us that we didn't want to tell people off anymore we didn't want to create huge yellow lines that you can often see of don't enter this area don't dump bags here we wanted to improve the look and feel of streets because then people would engage with them maybe if we would have tested for long when we got more data we might have seen knock-on effects for longer but obviously in in short amount of data collection trials we can only um, make recommendations on the data that we get the final thing just to say is as well we went really lateral with these solutions behavioral science gives us the 
the the license to do that. I think it might have been difficult 10 years ago to go to a, a council or local government and say, we want to wrap these in bins because of this insight that we have. Now, because companies and organizations are understanding the power of behavioral science, it means we can present and test much more lateral solutions. I think there's two important lessons behind this implementation. One is that testing is always necessary. Just because salience worked for app downloads in a French train station doesn't mean it'll automatically work for rubbish bins in Westminster. Testing your hypothesis is vital. The other point is that to change behaviour, you shouldn't always opt for expensive options first. Testing cheap options like these bin designs can have a positive impact. Sure, the affect bins don't have the statistical significance yet, but they did generate a lot of positivity from residents, and definitely more positivity than expensive CCTV would have done. All too often, private organisations expect that the only way to change behaviour is through capital. Want your marketing campaign to be more effective? Well, increase the budget. Want your customer onboarding to be smoother? Well, buy expensive tech to make it slightly quicker. Now, I'm not saying budget and capital aren't important. Of course they are. But cost-friendly solutions can also have a major impact. And ignoring them only creates an opportunity for your competitors. All right, that is all we have time for today. I want to say a massive thank you to Mike and Ella for coming on and sharing these studies. I encourage all of you to go and read the annual in full because there is heaps more case studies just like the ones shared today for those who are interested in behavioral science in practice. This is really a must read for everybody who likes the show. Now, if you want to follow Mike and Ella on Twitter, then check the show notes. I've left links to their handles there. And finally, if you want more Ogilvy Behavioural Science, go and search for Nudgestock. It's their yearly online conference come festival that features dozens of behavioural science presentations from expert speakers around the world. As always, please subscribe to the show wherever you listen and sign up to my weekly newsletter for more Nudge tips and a reminder each time an episode goes live. Simply go to nudgepodcast.com and click the newsletter button to sign up. Thank you again for listening.